for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. <clears throat> Great, please take a seat. Um, today I'd like to speak about the relationship between who God is as God the Trinity and our identity as Christians. We all, as evangelical Christians, live in Trinitarian waters. That is, we know and assume the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But sometimes we don't make the connections between who God is and particular aspects of our life. And this one, this talk today, is about how who God is and how he acts and works as God the Trinity is related to who we are. So to get into identity, I want to um, just point out how identity has a number of complicated issues associated with it, and it can be a little bit of confusing terrain, because we have external pressures upon us that seem to try to shape us in terms of our identity, and then there are very strong internal impulses within us that also shape our identity. And these can be both healthy and unhealthy, but what God does is he embraces us from the outside and from the inside to guide us into a healthy Christian identity. Um, But let me illustrate some of the identities that that I might wear on the surface on a weekend. Saturday mornings start with lacrosse, so I wear this. And in games, I become a lacrosse player. So put on my helmet, and then I have particular relationships with other people, seen through this, (laughs) this grill. And, and who I am and how I act is, is very strongly shaped by my position on the field, the fact that I um, have a long lacrosse stick, um, and I can hit you with it, okay, as we try to compete over a ball. So who I am in that instance is very different to hopefully the person you meet in chapel. Um, it's not, you know, the same person. And then after lacrosse, I coach my girls' basketball team, so I wear this hat. I, I wear a cap and a little coach's jersey. And I'm doing strategy and directing the girls and trying to get them to work together and think about what it means to have the tall people at the back and shooters at the front and, and you know, how to run the bench and everybody will get a go, but we still want to win, you know. Um, <laughs> so, and I'm also, like, competing with other parents, you know. I'm like, yeah, I, I see you. I know what you're doing. As soon as they call a timeout, they tell their team what to do. I see their girls thinking about it and they walk onto the court. Okay, they're going to put their sort of plays into action, boom, I call a timeout. Let's have a timeout. You know, just to throw them off, you know. So that, that's how you go. As a, that's what a good coach does. So that's me as a coach. And then later on that evening, I'll get to put on my favorite hat, which is this one. Oh, my gosh. It's like having a head hug. It's so nice. This is me on the couch at home with Kate, my favorite place in the world. We have like a Canara, we have a fireplace. I'm such a different person to who I am here. I'm just a different guy, you know. But, but, but it is, in a sense, this is very me, you know. But so is that. So who am I? It's very complicated. And the next day, um, with my son, we, we compete in board game tournaments. And um, I wear a hat when we go to these tournaments because the game we play is a fantasy card game, right? And so when I wear this hat, I'm kind of a little bit crazy and I embody the Latino characters that I use in the game, right? And it's all about um, cards and probability trees, but also kind of acting and role-playing. A lot of fun. But then in the evening, I'll probably do some work for Ridley, which means I'll wear my headphones, 
I'll put on New Order and just listen to that one song over and over and over again as I prepare ethics and apologetics. And again, I'm a very different person, you know, to who I am when I'm being crazy playing fantasy games. And this just illustrates in my life the complexity of identity, but these are things that I have chosen to take on for myself. And not everybody has that luxury, right? I could decide to over-identify or identify with one of these strongly, or I could hold them kind of weakly and at a distance, as they're just interests, they're just frostings on the cake. They're not really who I am. And that's, that's a luxury that we have. But a lot of people don't have the luxury of buying into identities. They have identities imposed on them. So, for example, where I grew up in Argentina, one of the kids I used to play with, I noticed that when we were about 14, he started not going to school much. And I was like, why don't, why don't you go to school? And he said, well, he knows that he's going to be a waiter just like his dad is a waiter because, like, they were all waiters in his family. So he didn't go to school um, because he knew that, like, he could never be something other than a waiter. So if he felt a call, for example, to Christian ministry or to be a doctor or be a dentist or some other kind of form of social service, he couldn't do it. And the same went for his younger sister, the youngest of seven. She must be the one who cares for the parents in their old age. So she, there wasn't much point of her going to school beyond, like, year eight anyway. So sometimes we have identities imposed on us that are very hard to break free from. A friend of mine at Lacrosse recently went back to um, his hometown in New South Wales. And when he came back, I noticed a change in him, and it's because he feels great shame about who he is as a person. You know, because his family's pretty complicated, there's lots of moms and dads and all kinds of relatives, and, and from the inside, he feels that he can never really be a full, healthy human being. And that actually spills over to the way he treats people, which isn't great. Well, how about for us? What, what do we say as Christians? What, what's the basis for our identity? Well, the first thing that we see from John's Gospel, if you want to turn with me, is that we're created and we're not our own. <clears throat> this means uh, from John chapter 1, 1 to 4, that we're made by God We're made for a purpose. Um, John opens saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. So here we're speaking about the second person of the Trinity, God the Logos, the wisdom of God. And it's through him that all people are made. And you might not know this, but we're made in delight. As it says in Proverbs 8, um, it's describing the wisdom of God through whom we're made. And wisdom says that I was there when God set the heavens in place, when he marked out the deep horizons on the face of the earth. And I was always rejoicing in his presence. I was rejoicing in his whole world, and get this, and delighting in the human race. God the Trinity is the one who made us because he delights in us. God the Trinity is a personal God, Father, Son, Spirit, who makes us as personal beings so we can rejoice with him and delight in relationship with him. We are made to be friends of God. Yes, servants of God as well, because we're images of God, but first friends of God, people that relate to God at our most fundamental level. 
That's who we are most basically. We're not most basically some kid from a two-bit town in New South Wales whose parents were vaguely you know, horrible and his brothers and sisters are just as bad. That's not our default identity, who we come from biologically. It's part of it. It's part of our story. But our basic default identity is made by the Father, Son, Spirit in delight for personal relationship with the innerly personal God. And notice in Proverbs 8 that there's a strong connection between being made by God in delight and the kind of qualities that God the Trinity wants to bring about in creation. It goes on immediately to speak about wisdom, living in righteousness, about flourishing. And the most important thing about finding wisdom is not to be harmed by being a fool, but it's to live a full life that is blessed So not only does God make us to be his in an interpersonal relationship, but he makes us to flourish according to our kind in wisdom. And we're going to see that that becomes critical to who we are when we read the Beatitudes. Because the Beatitudes, Jesus' central teaching on the identity of Christians, picks up this line of thinking to do with identity, flourishing, wisdom, justice together. Okay, Flourishing according to our kind. So God the Trinity makes us in wisdom. But you'll notice at the end of that little section in John 1 that there's this problem of darkness. There's this issue of the darkness that resists the light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And this is the challenge of sin and the devil who come in and they try to shape us and blind us to our true identity They try to blind us away from the worship of God. And as soon as we drop the worship of the God who calls us to union with him, then we start worshipping, as it says in Romans chapter 1, idols. And we create fake identities. Okay, And the example that Paul uses at the beginning of Romans is that people turn from having natural sexual relations with one another to unnatural ones. So we fall into lifestyles that are directly related to not worshipping God and owning the fact that we're made for wisdom and flourishing according to our kind in an interpersonal relationship with God. And this is part of the darkness that plagues humanity. And you can see the way it plays out in the book of Genesis. As soon as humans move away from their central identity with God and they lose the presence of God in the garden, what happens? Well, they start killing each other. They start boasting about violence. They try to set up great uh, reflections of their own greatness in Babel. It doesn't work at all. It just, it just all, all gets warped and lost. And people are crushed under different forms of identity. Structural ones, individual choices, and they're crushed by it. And that's why it's so important, as it says here in John that not only are we made by and for God, but God gives us a second offer to reclaim our identity, an even better one, which is to be children of God. You're not stuck at being made by the word and lost to the word. We're not stuck. God the word does something about it. He becomes incarnate. He also sends his spirit so that we can have a new identity as adopted children of God. See how it says here in verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, 
to those who believed in his name, verse 12, John chapter 1. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. God gives you and me the chance to have a new identity, to be his children, to be known by God as the precious ones that belong to his family. We can have a wholly new identity, a fresh start from who we might be under darkness. That means that whether your family background is very broken, whether you are known only by a physical feature, whether you're too short, too tall, too burnt, right? That, that, that is not the defining feature of you. You don't have to be the dumb one. You, you don't have to be the awkward one, okay? That can change because God is the one as creator who sets the foundational facts of reality. And he says, I've made you for a purpose and I can overcome anything that's come against that purpose. And I call you to be my child. And he wants you to be his child. And he can give you the gift of being his child. And that is a permanent thing. Let me tell you a story from the early church that relates to this. Some of you that have done early church history will know the story of Perpetua and Felicity. Okay? Perpetua is 22 years old. She's a wealthy woman who is a Christian. She's writing a diary in a Roman prison because she, together with Felicity, has been arrested and they're going to be killed if they don't offer sacrifices and worship to the emperor and to the Roman gods. So her dad comes along. He's wealthy. He's not a Christian. And he says, Perpetua, you're not living up to your duties as my daughter. You're embarrassing me. So confess that Christ is useless and really the emperor is the one who brings prosperity and the gods bring prosperity, okay? Abandon this ridiculous faith. Moreover, Perpetua, you have a child. Think of your child and and the child's own welfare. What are you going to do? And so Perpetua writes in her diary that her dad kept on coming to her and pressuring her to abandon her identity as a child of God, a Christian, and to retake her identity as his child, this Carthaginian elite woman, okay? And to fulfill everything that she should do as an elite Roman woman. So she has a choice between two families to which to belong. Whose child am I? And she falls back on what is real and what is not real. She's a realist. And she falls back on the fact that God himself has called us to be his children. And that that relativizes our family background. Doesn't obliterate it, but it relativizes it. And she says to her dad, see that vase over there? What do we call it? And he says, it's a vase. Yes, that's what we call it because that is what it is. And then she says, Christiana sum, I am a Christian. And that's it. I can only be known by that name because that's what's metaphysically real. That's my identity. Okay. That means she then does not do what the Roman oppressors wanted her to do, confess to their gods, curse Christ, and abandon her claim to Christian faith. We have, after her diary, an account of what happens to her. She gets thrown to gladiators and wild beasts, and they all die. She has a vision, though, before she dies that she writes down for us. 
wonderful vision of um, going into this beautiful garden where she sees an old man who's been milking a goat and he's surrounded by all these um, happy, joyful figures in in white and he turns around and he says, you are welcome here, my child. Okay? And then he feeds her with his goat's cheese that he has been making herself. But the key is, he says, you're welcome here, my child. This is how God knows you fundamentally as his child. And he is the good shepherd who will guide you even through horrors and terrors and trauma and death. He has not abandoned us and he did not abandon Perpetua either. Why is this? It's because Jesus promises that he does not leave us as orphans. See that line from John chapter 14. You haven't been abandoned as orphans. John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. How does Jesus come to us? He comes by the Spirit. I come equals the Spirit comes. Okay? If we don't believe in God the Trinity, that does not make sense. So your Trinitarian theology underlies the fact that you're not an orphan. That your fundamental identity is an identity of a, as a child of God. That, that's her fundamental identity is. And it's God the Spirit who calls us uh, it's God the Trinity who calls us into a relationship with himself and God the Trinity who maintains that. Notably by the presence of Christ that is the presence of the Spirit, the one who is in the Father and the Son, who is with us. The Holy Spirit comes to us to help us to do what? If you love me, you keep my commands. And this is a huge part of Christian identity. It's not just that God creatively makes you his, declaratively makes you his child, organically brings you into union. They're very important. The three aspects. That's what God does. But Christian identity involves an internal embrace as well. Yes, God's external, but you're internal, aided by the Spirit and the church. You have to take on doing his commands because God wants you to be his child, to live into that. This is what virtue ethics is. It's that as we act, we become certain people. And it's in your being that person that your identity is enfleshed and lived out. Identity is not just an ideal concept. It's who you are and how you're acting and how you're becoming. So keeping Jesus' words looks like, for example, in Matthew 5, if you'd like to turn there, when Jesus gives us these Beatitudes, and with Proverbs 8 in our minds, so Matthew 5, with Proverbs 8 in our minds that we are created on purpose, 
for delighting in God according to our kind and in righteousness and wisdom, then when he speaks the Beatitudes, you realize, yes, what God calls you to be as a Christian is to live into this amazing identity as being made in the image of God with amazing creative capacities, relational capacities, moral capacities, in a Christ-like manner. So we're fulfilling our nature and destiny as humans, as particular individuals known by God, when we embrace this wise way of living, the way of the blessed, the way of the flourishing. This is who we are to be, and this is who the Spirit helps us to be when we keep Jesus' commands. Blessed are, flourishing are you, beloved are you, who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're like that. Blessed are you when you are humble and you know your need for God's aid. Blessed are you when, for, for when you mourn, when you look at the world and you go, things are not the way they ought to be. And when you as a Christian decide to be, as it says immediately here, salt and light. Someone who preserves God in a rotting world, salt, and light. Someone who exposes darkness and points a way forward. You should mourn and recognize what's wrong so that you then act. This is what it is to be a child of God. God the light bringer. God the life bringer. God the love bringer. That's what it is to be a child of God in a dark world. Blessed are the meek. So how we go about bringing about change in this world is very important. You're not a brawler, okay? This isn't lacrosse. <laughs> How you are to be is to be someone who is gentle and meek as we bring about righteousness. That means, for example, when we take on problems, we do them well, we do them fairly. That's why we have policies and procedures. You need to treat people in justice. Why? Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness... Justice, which lives up to obligations and responsibilities and treating people according to their rights, that is the way in which we are to live as God's children. We're created to relate to one another in righteousness, not in unrighteousness, in everything that we do. This is what it is to be a Christian. And you know, that's really hard, but that's the whole point. Jesus says that he sends his spirit to convict us about what's wrong, to guide us into the truth, and in union with himself, to take us down this track of owning our identities Christians. So it's not an impossible task. And finally, we're called to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, to those who bring about shalom. Think about the qualities, mercy, purity, bringing about peace. That is what it is to be an image of God in a Christ-like manner. And blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. That is, you pursue righteousness all the way down. God the Spirit has not left us as orphans. He is with us and enables us. So I believe that when we think about Christian identity, we need to think about being made by God, being children of God, being with God because he's in us through his spirit 
and enabling us to embrace the virtues of actually being practically a Christian. So where does that leave all these different hats? Well, they're great, right? But they're not my identity. And I wouldn't want to over-identify with any of them. They will come and go. There'll come a time when I can't play lacrosse. There'll come a time when either Kate or I will die before the other. There will come a time where I may no longer be able to work. That, that's different, you know, that will come. And there'll come a time when the competitive gaming scene will die and then another <laughs> game will appear and I won't be that interested. Everything here can go. And they are nice extras, but they're not the foundation. The foundation is that we're children of God enabled to live really as Christians, making a difference in this world. Thanks.